One of the things that everybody in this room has in common is that we all have bodies, and they're really important to us. And I want to talk this morning a little while about the relationship between our bodies and God and what God has to do with our bodies. We do everything we do in our body. There isn't any us that we do here disconnected from our bodies. They are very, very precious realities. Any religion, any claim to faith, any directive that comes into our life that doesn't deal with these bodies of ours, it's just not going to click. It's not going to be relevant. It's not going to make a difference. But there's a kind of indirect way I want to get at this whole issue of our bodies. And it has to do with something else that we have in common as well. Namely, we have in common, besides our bodies, a sense of justice. And I think I can say this without exception right across this room here. No matter who you are, where you came from, you have built into your being a sense of justice, especially when you are wronged or when somebody near and precious to you are wrong. Like if you are pushed without any provocation at all. Somebody just intentionally and maliciously, without any provocation, pushes you or, or lies about you or steals from you, or, or hits your kid. In every one of us, there is something that just rises up and says, no, something has to happen to make that right. I'm calling this a sense of justice. There are fancier philosophical names for it, but it's there in every human being. One of the most common verbal expressions that brings that Reality out is, is the expression, you're going to pay for this. You're going to pay. You're going to pay. There is something in us that says you've got to pay when you've done something wrong against a person, against me. Now, Jesus comes along and he says things like, love your enemy. When someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other. Do not return evil for evil, but bless those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And the question just burns in our hearts. Wait a minute. Does Jesus, does Christianity teach that this reality inside of every person in this room is a wrong, bad reality. This, this thing that rises up inside of us and says, no, you're going to pay when you do something like that to me or my child or somebody, you're going to pay. And Jesus comes along and talks as though that's wrong. Now, what do we do with that? It, does Jesus, does Christianity say justice is cheap? You don't need any payment for justice. In fact, you don't need any justice. Just let it go and always return good for evil. Now, the answer to that is no. Jesus and Christianity do not teach that justice is cheap and that that innate sense of indignation when wrong is done, that that's a bad thing. Rather, 
What Jesus is teaching is that you don't have to do it, vengeance, because God is going to do it. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. In other words, Jesus is not saying when he says return good for evil, when he says pray for those who persecute you, when he says love your enemies, he's not saying injustices don't count. He's saying you don't have to bear that load. God will bear that load. Because there's a just God in heaven, because there's a holy God who rules the world, you don't have to rule the world. You don't have to set every wrong right. You don't have to bear the load of vengeance and bitterness and unforgiveness. You can lay it down because God's going to pick it up. Now, that may satisfy us for a while. It may give some relief that the wrong that was done to me that nobody saw will be made right. It may give some relief to our rising sense of anger and indignation when we look at millions of people murdered in the 30s and 40s by Joseph Stalin. When we look at six million Jews killed in Nazi Germany. When we think of a million executions by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. When we think of tens of thousands of Somalians being systematically starved by warring tribal lords. When we think of whole villages in Peru slaughtered by the shining path, it may for a few minutes give us some sense of relief. Wrongs are going to be set right by the Lord of the universe. Good. And then something else happens. Might take a little while, might take a longer period of time, but a third common reality in every one of your hearts awakens. It's the voice of conscience this time. And the voice of conscience says, Are you that affirming of justice toward your wrongs? Do your emotions rise with the same intensity of indignation that you've wronged another or God? Does there come up out of you the statement you're going to pay when you look in the mirror? And then this judicial sentiment that we have, we begin to shut down in a lot of inconsistent ways. We have found lots of ways to do this. We say, for example, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as, as others. Or, I've done more right things than wrong things. Or, well, I've already suffered so much, I've paid my dues for what I've done wrong. Or, there were extenuating circumstances. God knows, God knows there were. Or, we just go into denial and repress all of our wrongdoing or drown them in all kinds of addictions and compulsions. But you know what? Jesus Christ offers a better way to handle the indictment of conscience, which is a legitimate echo of the voice of a just and holy God. 
When our conscience rises and says, not just they will pay, but you will pay. We don't have to drown it. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to lie about it. We don't have to compare it. Here's what Jesus said. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The reason Jesus Christ came into the world is so that when my conscience rises and says to me for my wrongdoing, you will pay. I can say back to my conscience by faith in Jesus, I will not pay. Jesus paid it. A ransom for many for sins. Here's another great way of expressing it from Romans chapter 8. God has done what the law could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. When God sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, and he came to the cross voluntarily giving up his life. What was happening in the negotiation between the Father and the Son was that the guilt and condemnation of God's people was being put upon Jesus and condemnation and sin were being executed by the Father through the Son. So that when my conscience rises up and looks back over my life and sees sins and says, you're going to pay, Piper, I can by faith and looking to Jesus say, I will not have to pay. I will not pay. The gospel is, I will not have to pay. Jesus paid it. Judgment is over for me. The judgment day is not a future day. It's a past day. Two thousand years ago, my judgment happened on a cross in Palestine when the Son of God gave himself on my behalf. My judgment through faith is over. And when my conscience rises up and says, but don't you remember those years when you were a teenager? Don't you remember your mouth from yesterday? You will pay. Jesus says to me, I have paid. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that all who believe in him, when they hear the voice of judgment, from heaven and from conscience can say it is paid. It's paid. We're free. The judgment is past. Now, I want to connect this great and glorious good news of God's payment for your deliverance from condemnation with your body. And I invite you to take a Bible. There are some under the pew in front of you. It's on page 1361 in those Bibles. If you have your own Bible, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. And I want you to see a connection between this infinitely valuable payment of ransom that Almighty God paid to deliver us from sin with your body. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want not to communicate that Christianity is a set of ideas 
or a cluster of emotions or merely a way to get get out of this world to heaven. That is not what Christianity is. Christianity has to do with your body. It has to do with everything your body does. Sleep, eat, sex, smile, frown, laugh, embrace, work, play. Everything you do with this body has to do with God and the gospel. That's what this text is about. And that's what I want to show you. I, I see about seven things that it would mean for you this morning. Suppose you came in here this morning and uh, what I've been talking about for the last 15 minutes is totally foreign. And God opens your heart to say, that's exactly what I need. And that fits my reality. And it's in the Bible. And I begin to see evidences for its truth. And I want it so that I can say to my own indicting conscience, no, I don't have to pay. I too believe if you were to do that this morning, what would it mean for your body? That's my question. Number one, it would mean that God is for your body. Verse 13. I'm just going to take a different point from different verses in this paragraph. So find verse 13 and you'll see this one. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. How many years I read that text seeing the first half and not seeing that last phrase. An awesome phrase. The Lord is for the body. You see that? God is pro-body. I don't know how it happens, but I think Christianity communicates that we are anti-body. The body exists maybe to get sick with, to test our faith so that we can get our soul better. Or the body exists to get shed of as soon as we can to get on to heaven where real glory exists. The body is a temporary impediment to something wonderful later when we can get rid of it. There are philosophical schools that believe that way. That is not Christianity. This text says with lucid, simple, third grade clarity, the Lord, God Almighty, is for the body. If we are anti-body, we are anti-God. If we preach, as I did last summer that there is a place for denying the body and its cravings and its appetites at times. There's a place for that. That's not because we're anti-body. It's because we're pro-body in this life and especially in the life to come. I want my body to make it to the resurrection. There is a way to live it that will send it to hell. There is a way to live it that will make it to heaven. I am very pro-body in eternity. I want to be all of me with God forever. Number two, it would mean that your bodies are members of Christ. Now, this is a little heavy. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Members meaning Arms and legs and hands and feet. You are the arms and legs and hands and feet of the living 
Christ. Somehow or other, when you embrace Christ by faith and say yes to Christ, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, I believe in you and accept the price you paid for me, a union happens. And we say, well, yeah, I understand that. Verse 17 here says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And we all kind of say, yes, yes, we're spiritually united. That's not what verse 15 says. Verse 15 says your bodies, that stuff right there, that is Christ's. That that's part of Christ. Now, what in the world does that mean? The least it means from a story that Jesus told in Matthew 25 is, inasmuch as you do it unto one of the least of these brothers of mine, you do it unto me. You touch a Christian, you touch Jesus. You touch the church of Christ, you touch the head of the church. Our bodies are an extension and a manifestation in the world of what Jesus is. This is the high calling of a Christian. You're the light of the world because your good deeds that you do with your body shine. Number three, it would mean that your body becomes the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. When God sent His Son into the world to purchase you by paying the price of His own life, He did not buy a worker. He bought a dwelling place. I want you to feel this now. He didn't buy slaves and then say, now work for me. I've got needs. This plantation won't make it without you. Work. That's not, that is not the way He bought us. He bought us as treasure chests for the treasure of God. This is an awesome thought. Your body, I mean, not even your soul or your spirit, but this body. God says this. I'm not saying it. God says your body, in some mysterious sense, is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. What a thought. What an awesome dignity. He sets before us and calls us to that we would be made the dwelling place of the almighty God. Number three or four. It means that your bodies would be raised from the dead. Verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord Jesus but will also raise us up through his power. In other words, if God is for your body, if your body is united to Jesus, if the Holy Spirit dwells in your body, he's not going to throw your body away. He's not going to come to the end of this world and say, oh, good. Now we've we've made use of that body for a little while. Let's throw that away and onto something better. That is not going to happen. When God raised Jesus from the dead, the reason he did, among others, was to demonstrate to us what's going to happen to us. Because we're in Christ, united to him, members with him. When he raised, that was the guarantee. When he was raised, that was the guarantee of our resurrection. 
The bodies in this room are of all different kinds. There will be in the resurrection no more disability. There will be in the resurrection no more disease. There will be in the resurrection no more chemical imbalances, no more insomnia. Whatever it is that is your enemy in your body and you feel it as an enemy because this body is fallen and futile, that's going to go. But your body's not going to go if you're united to Christ. It's coming out of the grave, new, beautiful, whole, complete, perfect. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father, Jesus said in Matthew 13. Number five. It means that you do not have to be mastered by anything. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. What an awesome statement. The Apostle Paul, writing that on behalf of God through inspiration, says, When you've been bought with a price, you are God's child. He is for your body. You're united to the Son. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. You are slave to no one and no thing. You're a free man and a free woman. Do not be enslaved to anything. Over in chapter 7 he says, You were bought with a price. Be enslaved to no one. You do not have to be enslaved to the things that threaten to dominate your life. If these truths are embraced and believed and rested in, there moves into your life a liberating power. Number six. You would no longer use your body for immorality. Verse 13, second half of the verse. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. Verse 18, same thing. Flee immorality. Now, the reason God calls us to chastity and to purity is not primarily because if we disobey, we're going to get AIDS. It's not that we get pregnant. It's not that we get caught. The world's going to fix all that, you know. The reason for purity and chastity is not because you might get caught, but because you've been bought. You've been bought at a price that is infinite and you love the one who gave his life to buy you for purity, to buy you for chastity, to buy you for his glory. When everything is said and done, the bottom line for Christians in why we walk in purity and deny desires that would lead us into sin is not the fear of consequences on the earth, but the love for Christ who paid his life that we might be pure. Which leads us to the last point. It's here in verse 20. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. 
If I had another half an hour, you know what I would do to use it? In the service, I would walk out among you and I would find these people. I would find a man who has AIDS and I would gather another three or four who struggle with homosexuality that I know about in this room. And I would invite you to the front and I would say, now tell us what it's like as you struggle for God to glorify himself in your body. And then I would I would go out and I would I would find a man who was told in the last couple of months that he has life threatening cancer and who's fighting for his life. And I would have him stand here and I would say, now tell us, how is God manifesting his glory in your life, in your body, your, your cancer ridden body? And then I'd go back out and I'd find a young woman who has for a decade or more struggled with bulimia. Came into my office not long ago to say she had just turned a, a wonderful corner, she believes. And there's hope. And I would say, tell us about that. What happened? How's God beginning to get more glory now in this triumph in your life? And then I'd go out. I really wouldn't know where to go for this one. I would just say, why don't you all come up here? All the women who have lost little tiny bodies. We like have an epidemic of miscarriages in this church. Stillbirths, loss of young people. And I would include those of you who've had an abortion. And I'd have you all come up here and I would say, tell me how God's beginning to glorify himself in this loss of this body and in your body. Tell us about it. And I believe with all my heart, if we had that half an hour, the testimonies that you would hear coming out of these people's mouths would be heartbroken. They would be tearful. They would be realistic. They would not be naive. But they would say, God is faithful. God is glorifying himself in this imperfect body. God means to bring me to resurrection wholeness someday where there is no more sickness, no more loss, no more disorientation in my life. You know what it means to glorify God in your body? Let me just put it in a sentence for you as we close. It means using your body in such a way that it becomes clear that God is more precious and more satisfying than all the bodily cravings in the world. Using your body in such a way that it becomes clear that God himself, his way, his word, his love, his grace is more precious than all bodily cravings, no matter what they are. So I just commend to you with all my heart this morning the infinitely valuable price that God paid for sinners, Jesus Christ. I remind you and commend to you this wonderful gospel truth that he paid a price so that when your conscience rises late at night, reminds you of the past and says you will pay, you can by faith in this Jesus look back into your conscience face and say I will not have to pay. He paid. My judgment day is past. Nobody could improve upon the payment of Jesus Christ. And then I would simply remind you it was your body that was bought. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your 
power and your presence and your price that you paid to free us. And I ask now that as we close, you would fill us with a song. As we lift our hearts with this hymn, now thank we all our God. May we sing it, perhaps some of us from the first, for the first time, from the bottom of our souls. Lord Jesus, draw near now. Release our hearts to praise you. Release our lives to serve you. Release our bodies from every bondage that they might bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.